Aggieville, Aggieville, I'll be out in Aggieville. Aggieville, Aggieville, I'll be out in Aggieville. Aggieville, Aggieville, I'll be out in Aggieville. Aggieville, Aggieville, I'll be out in What's up, everybody? You're listening to yet another edition of Cocaine Willie. Tonight, we've got another one-on-one stretch for the men's hoops team to discuss with a grinded-out victory against the Texas Tech Red Raiders last Saturday in Manhattan and another punch-for-punch type of game with the Iowa State Cyclones last night in Ames, Iowa that ended in a close loss. Chef, let's get you up on stage here, buddy. Looks like your your avatar is a little different today. Yeah, change it up. Naquan looking oh, very stoic in his Eskimo gear. I mean, I just love that picture. It's so funny. It's it's pretty cold. It's pretty cold. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we are we are without for all of those who are listening on the feed. We are without our uh, our trusty sidekick, Fireball Matt tonight. But that said, we've got uh, we've got some other folks who are in the live room. We've got a couple games to recap here. And I think there's nothing else to do other than get right into it. And uh, we'll go ahead and and if you are in the live room and want to join, go ahead and get your speaker request up here. We'll keep it pretty free form tonight. I don't I don't know outside of just reviewing the the two games that we're going to have a whole lot more to discuss. But I think the first one, first and foremost, the Texas Tech game. It was uh, really kind of a pretty ugly game for most of the first 25, 30 minutes of gameplay. And K-State found a way to win against the Red Raiders in a 68-58 to win at home in Manhattan. Uh, Tech led by five at half and led by eight points at the 13-minute and 22-second mark of the second half. But the Cats eventually pulled away with a 23-point effort by Marquise Noel, a 15-point effort by Keontae Johnson, who combined that with 11 rebounds and three assists. And then Big 12-ish, or Swish Masood, however we want to call it, He was the third in total points with 12 and six of those came beyond the arc for him. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but tech is not the best team in the big 12 right now. They're 64th in Kempom. Uh, The Florida team that we're going to be playing this weekend is, is ranked higher than Texas tech. And that's still better than, uh, than tech was going into last weekend. I think they were in the, the low, 70s 80s maybe potentially they were they were pretty down bad last week coming into that game but my last comment here is the two tones are sick I would love to see more of them Chris Patola can can kiss my ass on that front but uh chef what were some of your thoughts on the Texas Tech game before we move on to Iowa State game and, and what were some of your takeaways based on the effort obviously a huge effort by Marquise Noel uh to get 23 points in that one but what were kind of your thoughts during the game and, and as it un- unraveled, where did your head go after halftime? Yeah. I mean, the, it was the Marquise to get back on track. You know, he's the previous two games, he was kind of subdued. You could say uh, he wasn't filling up the stat sheet points wise. I mean, he kind of did a TCU, but you know, you know how that was. It was at the end, he got going the way he needed to just to, get some garbage points, but K KU game, he was, I think he might've been held to single digits if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, he started hitting those three balls and he, he got us going in that he, he really was the only thing we had going in the first half. So to get Marquise back on track was, was good to see the first half. 
from what I could tell on TV, the crowd seemed like it was it was it was jumping in the first half a little bit. It was still a little just the slow energy. It just wasn't all the way there. What you would want to see. Um, what did Keontae have two shots in the first half and he missed both of them. So when you see stats like that, I mean, it's it's tough because Keontae's He's not the best ball handler, so he he turns the ball over when he gets it at the top of the key and he kind of tries to make his own shot. And if we're not running sets for him, it's kind of hard to get him in a rhythm, especially because he's such a team player. He's going to try to, if he sees a double team, he's passing it. Instead of kind of going up for that mid-range shot or getting his own shot and trying to draw fouls and stuff like that, it, it was just not his they kind of took him out of the game, but they left that to Marquise and Marquise took advantage. But that first half was a little, I mean, it was a struggle. I mean, they were hitting shots and timely shots because we had chances to go up, you know, big. Like we had, we had a chance to go on runs to get the crowd into it and they would just hit the most random three in the world. And, you know, it just sucked the momentum out. And then let's, I mean, a half court heave, to make it a five point game going into halftime is not what you want to see, especially when the team has no energy and the crowd kind of got sucked out of it at that point. Agreed. Agreed. And since we are shorthanded tonight, like I said, we've got a couple other new people in the, in the live room, but if you want to give your takes on the Texas tech game, I, I want to throw it over to, to Will Dubois and, and Joe Falter here. Yeah, it was good to see us win that tech game. Um, it's you got to win games like that if you want to be in the hunt for a Big Twelve title. Um, you got to beat the teams you're supposed to beat, even if it's not pretty. And usually, you need to win those games like Iowa State, but that's a tough game, and it was on the road. Uh, and we, unlike the TCU games, stuck with it. Um, and I watched that one actually part of the game at a brewery with the Casey Catbackers. So shout out to them and thanks for hosting a watch party. Highly recommend it. If no one, or sorry, if you have not been to one before, they're a friendly bunch. Got a couple other people. Joe, Joe, what were your takes on the Texas Tech game? And also your first time, first time joining Cocaine Willie. Well, yeah, long time, first time. Happy to be here. I, I came just because I was mostly trying to audition for the role of Fireball Matt. Um, I've heard there's a vacancy. My my impression mostly is physical, so if I can email my tape to anyone, I, I would love to be able to do that. Um, with that being said, I don't I don't know the the tech game for me was was solidifying in like like uh, what Chef said. Um, you know, being able to win those games are, are things that you need to do. I think it was Chef who said that. It might have been Will. Um, and it kind of gave me a little bit of, like, the Patrick Mahomes effect while watching the Iowa State game last night of being like, all right, like, we can call back. Like, I know that these guys, while, while our rhythm might be, you know, feeling off or something like that, I know they got them dog in them. So I was really kind of hopeful near the end. And truthfully, I, I was really impressed with the um, – level that our guys were able to push and and really kind of come back and make last night competitive against a really tough Iowa State team. But all in all, hope's still high. Hopes are definitely still high. 
Will the thrill and Hayes, what are what were your takes on that Texas Tech game last Saturday? And I mean, I I also want to hear from the group here. Two tones. Are you for or against? Whoops. Okay, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> I think that. Uh, the Texas Tech game is where we started to see some of the errors, and I, I think that's kind of what uh, Willie D said was the 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 rebounding is what has uh, I feel like been a, a huge factor in some of these games, and we started to really see that in the Tech game. And um, I mean, we I think the last two games have we've seen where margin of error, we squeaked out the win against tech. And uh, so it was a good win. Um, but then there was just, uh, wait, you, you said the tech game. I'm sorry. I mean, but the tech game was the same thing. The, when you've got players like, I mean, that AMAC guy and that um, Barco kid, he's a dirty bitch, but you know, whatever. But when you got guys, I mean, they're, statues they're towering over our team um when naquan does not crash the boards when uh bebe's in foul trouble and then you're having to rely on ish who's i mean his primary role is a spot shooter if we're asking him to try to box out a 7-2 guy that's 270 pounds he's not going to be able to deliver what we want on the offensive end. So he takes plays off on the defensive end. And that's what happens when, when you have a guy that's a, basically a small forward trying to play center, you're going to get beat on the boards and we're, we're 17 and three. But the thing is we can get beat on the boards, but we can't, we have to play perimeter defense better because there's only so many offensive rebounds that they're going to get on long jumpers. But if we're letting them drive by and get layups off of off of offensive rebounds, or that's where they're getting they're getting their most of their offense is on dribble drives into the paint, we're going to get beat more because Iowa State, I know we were talking about tech, but that was in the first half of tech where they were they were hitting perimeter jump shots or they were getting offensive rebounds and trying to finish uh, in the paint off of offensive rebounds. You can't have both because you're going to get beat. But if we could play tough perimeter defense and make make them into bad shots and they can't get every offensive rebound, so we'll win that way. But I don't know, when we first started this season, we thought this team wouldn't be able to score the ball very well. We didn't know. We knew we'd play tough defense out on the edge, and we thought we'd be able to rebound a hell of a lot better than we are. We thought we were so long we were going to be able to rebound, but our bigs just aren't rebounders. They're, I mean, so let's be honest, they're, per, they're, they're perimeter, fancy. I mean, they're, they're skill position guys on the whole team except for Bebe, and Bebe just can't stop fouling. So it's, you know, it's you got to give and take, and we're winning more than we're losing right now, but if we don't get it figured out, we're going to be in trouble, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, the we'll get to it later, but the Iowa State game, I, I've got some thoughts there. But, yeah, I one thing that is a, a good positive that came out of this Texas Tech game that I will say is a, a trend that's continued forward is 
Tech shot 24% from the three-point line. So we've continued a streak of really damn good three-point defense. But, Chef, to your point, it really doesn't matter how well you're guarding the three if they're just going to dribble drive past you and get points under the bucket every single time. So, you know, it's there's a little bit of give and take there. Um, I guess just a couple other stats from the Tech game. Uh, K-State was 74% from the free-throw line, which – We'll get to that with the Iowa State game because it was not that last night. We turned it over more, uh, 14 to their 12 turnovers, and we're out-rebounded 41 to 37. I think, again, the major takeaway here that I've heard from everybody in the group is is the Cats found a way to win and, and really grind it out in a tough matchup against a team that's that's going to give you trouble. And Texas Tech is incredibly physical, and they're an incredibly – tough team to play regardless of where they're ranked in Ken Palm or whatever. So the big 12, there's, there's no easy night in case they didn't have an easy, easy night against uh, Texas tech. And and I think that trend's going to continue. It's just going to be punch for punch the rest of the way with a lot of these teams. Um, anybody else have any final thoughts on the tech game before we talk a little bit more about the one that's fresher in our memory of, of Iowa state. I thought it was good that you brought up the three-point percentage because this is going to kind of tie into Iowa State. But I saw that, and instead of being happy about our defense, I was a little bit worried about, um, I guess this would be progression to the mean, and that we were just getting lucky that people were um, not having good shooting nights against us. But that continued against Iowa State. So um, there's a lot down right now about the rebounding and everything, but something that we can really be confident in going forward is um, we're keeping pretty much everyone below their three-point percentage, and it's proving that it's more of a defensive than a luck thing. Oh, yeah. When it when it comes to jump shots, and you've heard, we've all heard the adage, you live by it, you die by it. And most teams in college, they're going to die. There's, it's very rare that you get a team that shoots 50% or high 40% on a game from the three-point line or, you know, from these long mid-range jumpers that Barry Brown used to hit all the time. It's just not the case most of the time. And when you play good perimeter defense, that's what's going to happen. We're going to hold teams below their averages. But like I said, if you're letting dribble drives go, it's it's going to be tough to to stop because – I would guarantee you that they're they were probably shooting close to like seventy percent from two, and it was I mean near the paint it was just and it's the big guys it's like the guys we can't stop them without fouling them and it's it's tough to watch but I mean it's just the nature of our team we're gonna exploit them on when they're on defense and they're gonna exploit the, us when they're on offense because. They can't handle being stretched out by Ish at the three-point line or with Naquan playing the five and being able to handle the ball. But if they get it into the block, I mean, it's basically a wrap. And, and I I don't know what you do with that because we're, we're not much of doublers. And I thought somebody said it perfectly in the chat with giving baseline or giving the middle of the defense. If we're going to double, we have to know where our help is. And if we're not getting, if we're letting them just go baseline and there's no baseline help, it's 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 a layup. It, I I think that's coachable. And Tank said it best in it in in his post game. 
that they're going to work on the rebounding and they're going to work on defending these big guys because, I mean, Florida's coming into town on Saturday and they've got a dude, I think his last name's Castleton, I'm not sure, but we'll talk about it after the the Iowa State breakdown, but that dude can play and he's all of 7-1. So it's going to be another tall test of big guys coming into town and giving us problems, hopefully. Hopefully not. Actually. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully not. Like, like you said, um, I think the defense is coachable, and maybe I'm just being a little overconfident in the coaching staff right now, but I think we may have every right to be right now. Um, the defensive rebounding, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure we can get a little better, but I'm kind of to the point where we might just have to suck it up and hope that we win in other ways, which we can. But the defending, I feel like there's some adjustments that can be made like you were talking about the help defense um, covering baseline um, things like that. Like maybe we should just become a team that just denies into the paint, the entire game, like fronts them. And sometimes that's going to get, that's going to get them playing high low and just throwing it over your head for easy dunks. But um, most of the time that's going to keep the ball out of the paint and, um, keep them from being able to just bully us, which they're doing right now. So I, I have some trust in the staff with these three days off that maybe we can make some adjustments defensively that um, can not completely stop the issue because you can't just all of a sudden conjure up some seven foot, 300 pounder that can stop it, but at least aid it that we can make up for. No, I'm no basketball coach, but I've watched plenty of basketball and not to shoot down that because we do when it comes down to it, we do front like in pressure and pressure moments. We do front the post a lot. The only problem is that is, you know, if they do decide to throw it in, it's a dunk, like you said, but if they don't and they shoot, they're already in perfect offensive rebounding position. It's the, the core of what we were all told that Tang was going to bring from, and this is all, I mean, if you look up KSU fan on the boards or whatever, he, he explains this a lot better than I'm going to butcher it. But the no middle defense is kind of like you want them to take baseline because that's where the help is. You They swing it to the wings. You let them have baseline because your middle is going to come over and take take their baseline away. So you don't want them driving to their dominant hands into the middle or the post player going into the middle of the lane, you want them to have to go baseline and the guy underneath is going to stand tall and make it a tough layup. But we're not seeing that. It's it's maybe offenses are figuring out like little sets where they can run and make the middle defender have to not be able to help. But, you know, you make those adjustments. And like you said, uh, Hayes, the coaching staff – is strong. Our coaching staff is very strong and they make adjustments very well, especially in the second half. Um, they adjust pretty well, but we're going to see because after the TCU game, we got bullied around pretty bad by Lampkin. And, you know, before, I mean, Adams is a different guy for K- KU, but we, we made adjustments and we looked a lot better. And even the big guy for Tech, bringing up the Tech game, that AMAC guy, we held him to like four points or something like that. And 
we played really good defense against him. It's just the offensive boards. And I think that's a philosophy thing and an effort thing for sure, especially when it comes to Naquan. I mean, Naquan's all of 6'10". With, he's built like a 7'5 guy, but he just doesn't – it's just not a – he's not a board crasher. So it's, if we could get that mentality into him, it would help a lot. But we've got a collective rebound, but that it, it's a give-and-take thing. We'll, we'll give up more perimeter shots if they do get the offensive rebound or more runouts on trying to crash the offensive glass. It's, it's a whole thing, but we're going to have to find ways to win differently because I don't think we'll ever be an, uh, an excellent rebounding team from here on out. Which, speaking of ways to win, we didn't find one last night, unfortunately. The, the you know, number five team in the country, unfortunately lost to a number 12 right ranked uh, Iowa State team in Ames. Uh, the dudes from Iowa State, they're falling, all, falling over, they're drawing foul calls. You know, I don't think anything was super egregious, but there were a couple of moments where the Iowa State guys just fell over and they called, I think, one foul on Keontae that specifically resonated with me. And I was just very confused at what was going on there. But that's something that they have done in in previous games. As most of you know, my wife is a Texas Longhorn fan and she was so complaining about the game that they had against Iowa State, where Iowa State, you know, in her words, they were acting, they're just falling over this and that. But I, you know, after seeing it in person, I definitely understand what she was talking about there. So that was an interesting twist to the whole thing. And we can maybe talk about that in more detail later. But, you know, Iowa State fans were chanting, fuck K-State. We left eight points at the free throw line and ultimately lost by four points, which is not good. You know, we, we need to make those clutch free throws in situations where we're going to be playing in close games, because if you are missing those, that's going to be the difference between coming out with a, with a victory or or coming out on the losing end, which we did. And uh, this was the first installment of Farmageddon basketball edition for this basketball season. So we will see another matchup later in the, you know, next coming next couple of weeks, coming weeks against Iowa state back in Manhattan. But, you know, we led by two at the half, the Cyclones were, honestly just kind of a pain in the ass for lack of a better, better way to put it. It felt like every time K-State had a momentum swing or things were moving in the right direction, Iowa State just responded. They found a way to respond, whether it was rebounding or getting a foul that was called on us, whatever the situation was, they responded and it killed and stifled our momentum to where we could never really get a grip. Even, even if Marquise hit a clutch three, which he had, I want to say I can pull up the stats here, but Marquise had a good night from three and he shot four for five from beyond the arc. So it was just a weird game. Uh, Back-to-back games for Marquise with 23 points, four for five from beyond the arc. Like I mentioned, it was a double-double for Keontae. Um, What was it? 25 points or no, 15 points, not 25 points, 15 points and 10 rebounds. Uh, but he really struggled in the first half, so he kicked it into gear in the second half. And then Big 12-ish had 13 points. He went back-to-back games with 13, um, 13 or 12, I think he had in the last one, coming off of the bench there. And then Cam Carter started off hot well and cooled off in the second half, so almost the inverse of what happened with Keontae. Uh, Cam Carter finished with 15. Uh, 14 turnovers to um, Iowa State's 18 22 fouls to Iowa State's, uh, what was it? Sorry, I'm just looking at the stats on the fly, but 
Uh, fouls, fouls, 22 to 18. Yeah. Iowa state had 18 fouls. So, uh, it was just a tough game to watch. I mean, it was punch for punch, which is good. It means that you can stay in lockstep and stay in tandem with some of these high powered top 15 teams. But again, it, in most of these situations, K-State has found a way to win. This was an example of the inverse where we, we didn't find a way to win. Unfortunately, the, the missed free throw shots definitely killed the team. The stifled momentum definitely killed the team. The Cats are still technically tied for first in the Big 12, uh, but the Cyclones have a tiebreaker right now. So they're sitting on top with the same record of us in conference play, but but they've got the tiebreaker. So unfortunately, you lose that top spot. But I would honestly be surprised if, if we don't split this series one-to-one. So I know that was a lot of kind of stream of consciousness and talking through some of the stats there. But Chef, I want to start with you. What were your thoughts on the game statistically or otherwise do you think that momentum was stifled do you think that we could have potentially come out on top if we'd made those free throws of i've got a lot of questions for you but want to want to hear your unfiltered unsolicited opinions oh i mean it's a herky-jerky big 12 game when it's officiated like that you're gonna you're gonna there's no momentum there's no flow to a game and that's fine because it's going both ways let's it it is what it is you know they call ticky tack we we got ticky tacks it's it is what it is but you can't i mean like you said they they answered the bell when it when time came they hit clutch shots they they made their free throws their big guy i i swore to god i was like this next one has got to be a miss. There's no way he's just going to keep draining free throws, and he just kept draining them. But they're a decent team. I mean, they they play hard. I thought Caleb Grill being out there and hitting that clutch three, I thought he was. I mean, he was a skeleton. I was like, there's no way he can't move, but he made the three. And it, you know, it's just like that sometimes. And they just hit clutch threes. And you said. I, I want to bring up – this is the only stat that I'm going to bring up, really, because I don't have him in front of me and I can't think of him. But Marquise had a great game. But he he always starts out in the first half where he just makes silly throws, the full-length court pass to it, uh, Bebe on the run, unnecessary. When we're, when we're, when we've got points and we're, we're scoring on them and we've got a little bit of a lead, and he just throws the ball away. Just I mean, a full-length court pass – two-hand push pass, and that's an out-of-bounds baby, and it's back to there. Nate's probably scoring the next play. Um, but the the stat that I want to bring up, he's four for five from three, right? That's what you said? Yep. Holy fucking shit. If he doesn't have a wide-open, fast-break layup and shoots a fucking three from the top of the key. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, I had forgotten about that. But it's it's not even logo three bad because I could deal with the logo three because he makes them shits. But when you're it's in a tight game, you just got to steal. You've got momentum. Get the fucking layup. And it and was one does, on one. He had no one else defending him. Why, it was why two did you pull one. up? He had <laughs> he, two on one because he had Keontae on the other. I think it was Keontae on the other side. Just uh. run and get a layup and get the points and. Then he's and then the next possession they they get the ball back and he steals the ball and gets the and gets fouled. It could have been four points right there for us, but 
it's just little things like that. I mean, because it's going to, that's going to be the narrative basically the entire way through the finish Marquise Noel's career is going to be, you don't want to take the Marquise Noel factor away from him and let him just bottle him up like Bruce Weber supposedly did or whatever, or obviously did, but you, you gotta get him, keep him on the tracks. I mean, my God, you cannot do that. A pull up three pointer when the game, it's a, you know, this is going to be a single possession game. If, if that was at home, I understand. Cause that would get the crowd absolutely berserk. But when you're on the road, you need these baskets, baby. Come on, please. Just I want smart Marquise instead of like electric Marquise on the road. On at home, go crazy, my guy, because you know the crowd is gonna. What Tang and company say that it's the t- crowd is worth ten points. If the crowd's worth ten points on the road at at Hilton, you can't let them have points by empty possessions that's the only thing i'm going to rant and rave basically on that game so i want everybody else to get in on this yeah i mean it's it's kind of nitpicking for me um because overall they've played phenomenal um those some of those turnovers that that we see marquise noel uh, make you know you're gonna have those that's just kind of how he plays but um it's just especially against someone like Iowa State it, it just the rest of the big 12 conference there's just zero margin for error it's, it's just a gauntlet so <clears throat> even the stuff that you you do bring up you know you're gonna see that from other teams it's just in this conference you can't have it if you're gonna be on the top um uh, another you know another one is like just sometimes they're trying to force it a little too much instead of just letting it play out. Um, I think that's one of the things that drives me crazy as well. But uh, you brought up the, you know, where he should have just taken the, the quick, the quick points. And then at the end of the game, he tried to, you know, we were what in the last, I can't remember going back maybe last under a minute. And I was like, well, why didn't you try to take the three there? He went, you know, he went under for the two and we needed three points for the tie. So I was going to kind of ask your thoughts on that as well. Um, do you think that he should have drove like he did at the, in the last few seconds, or do you think he should have pulled up for a three? Uh, I I feel like it's tough because I'm, I'm usually in the school of thought of don't, don't force the three and get the points. But in this situation, when the entire game, any kind of momentum you would get off of any kind of bucket, it's immediately being stifled by the other side, whether it's with an off, you know, in this case with under a minute, probably with a foul, you're having a foul guy and, and force him to shoot free throws. But I just, I, I, I think I agree with you because he, he chose at the wrong moment to take a three in a very undisciplined decision when when you really needed it was at the end of the game. If you were going to make that shot and miss it at the end of the game, at least you tried. And that would have, that would have given us at least a tie. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. Usually I fall into, into the don't force the three school of thought, but you know, in this situation, I, I agree with you, Will. Uh, I think that, I think that that would have been the right decision to make is, is save it for the end. Yeah. Kind of along with that. Um, 
I'm usually someone in that specific scenario. I think we had like just at 30 seconds at the start of the possession, um, somewhere around there and down three. Like I like taking an easy two. The only problem was it wasn't an easy two. So I, I don't want them like shooting some double team contested three, which is what teams do a lot of the time. And that is a layup that Marquise makes a lot. But after he put it up, you're just like, man, like I feel like we could have gotten, if we're going to shoot a two, we could have gotten a better one in not too much more time. Uh, they could have helped us a little more. But yeah. is is You guys got to help me out. Is this, is this the one where he drives to the left and he shoots it and misses? I, he was driving he, on the right side. Oh. Kind of ran into a double team a little bit. Because I'm trying to remember if, if, if the play I'm remembering, he had Ishmasu to his left wide open. Yeah. Is that not the. Well, oh, I may get. I, I think that was. Yeah, was that, that was the, the right, end of the game when we're down? Yes, you're correct. Yeah, Ish was over on the, the far left and he was driving to the right. But uh, I don't think that. I mean. You've seen that pass been made, but I went back and looked at the picture, and I think it may have been Grill that was sitting right on the block. So I don't think a, I mean, as much as it would have been a absolute, um, you know, absolutely amazing to see Ish make that shot. I don't know if he could have made that pass because I think he was being doubled. Correct me if I I've got to look at this because if I remember correct, I mean, he sets a pick to uh, Ish picks uh, sets a pick screen on the left. And he drives to the left, if I remember right. But I might be remembering wrong because Ish is wide open for the three. But I think we were already down four at that point. But I'm not sure. I but, have to look. The one we're talking about, we were down three. You're thinking of one possession later. Okay, so this, this is when he goes to the right and he does like the circus like scoop layup. And yeah, okay. Yeah, the yeah. thing about those is like 33 seconds left in the game. You kind of have to, you're like in that in between. Like if you're at 40 seconds, go for the two because if you, because it's whatever happens, if he misses it or makes it, you're down a possession and you only got time for one full shot clock. If you're like, if it's at 40 something seconds, then you could go for the two. And even if they, if you make it or miss it, you could foul and you'll still have a full shot clock under there. Like it, it's so hard, but a a a, a tested a contested three might have been the move, but who knows? I mean, it's just if it's not open, you kind of have to take what you. Yeah, what I mean, we've got a couple other. I think will the other will. We've heard from we've heard from one will, but not the other. What are your thoughts on on the Iowa State game, and and maybe if you want to, if you have anything to contribute to the the last thirty seconds there, what what would you do in that situation? I think everyone's kind of covered it pretty well, and I just hope that you know, and the, the TCU after a TCU loss, we moved on. We had some big games coming up, and the Big Twelve every game is big, but obviously with Florida coming and KU on the horizon, there's some big ones. So I. Aside from it being a learning experience, I just hope they've already forgotten it. Just move on and, and focus. Memory like a goldfish, Ted Lasso style, right? And, I mean, J- 
just like you, just like me. I have a statute of limitations on my, on my memory. It usually lasts about, you know, two hours potentially tops, but I mean, do we, chef, do you want to, do you want to close out with any additional thoughts on Iowa state? I mean, it's not necessarily Iowa state, but it's kind of a philosophy not philosophy, but like a, a theme of the, of the first, you kind of call it the first half of the season really. Um, We've we've got an injured player in David Gasson, who was arguably our best interior player before his injury, uh, and he was averaging what, like eight and five or something along those lines before he got hurt, and he was actually coming on pretty strong. Gasson didn't play in this game, which was surprising to me. Does Gas? Where do we need Gasson, and would Gasson be a difference maker in the whole scheme of what we were talking about, where we struggling to rebound and all that stuff? And he can kind of stretch the floor, but he's also an interior guy. Surprisingly, would he make a difference? And where do you see his impact when he comes back, if he comes back uh, where he was at? I think it just gives the team more options, right? It gives the team more versatility and the ability to be more creative with whatever the play calling is, knowing that you're also going to have some more depth and and there are other guys on the bench that you can rely on. So I I do think it makes a difference just because it gives you some more wiggle room to be creative, to use other guys and, and play off of each other's strengths a little bit differently. But I'm curious the rest of the group's thoughts on that. I don't know so much about the defensive rebounding. I, I think he definitely helps, but I definitely think Dave is our best interior defender, um, which is a little strange because I believe he's six nine, which would be like the third, fourth tallest player at center. But I think he's the most effective defender. So he, I do think he makes a pretty massive impact. And I really hope we get him back soon. Um, I don't know how much he matters for KU just because they don't have anyone down there that's worth caring about, except for KJ off the pick and rule, but he's not going to back anyone in. But God, it'd be nice to have him against um, Castleton this weekend. Um, Just because, like I said, I think he's the best interior defender. Pretty much anyone else gets bullied, and he seems to uh, hold his own to someone well, we know that KU doesn't have anybody outside of really Jalen Wilson and Grady Dick at this point, especially in this losing skid. So, you know, I, I agree with your point there, but, you know, they might not have anybody outside of those two, regardless of what KJ Adams is doing. But uh, Will and Will, what do y'all got? Um, <clears throat> I guess I'll go ahead and go. Um, I I think that, in all honesty, I think that having Gasson for that game could have made a world of difference. Um, I respect that they're not going to play him if he's not 100%. Um, I haven't heard. I mean, because it, it is kind of strange that we did see him in the Tech game for a little bit and then didn't see him in the Iowa State game. But I do think that, uh, like Hayes said, I think he is our one of our better bigs. Um, I I think that I, I love I love the intensity that Bebe plays with. And uh, – just his just his tough tenacity you see it on the look you know on his face when he's in the box and just I love everything about him but it's just he gets caught with those fouls and I I feel like Gasson does a better job of 
playing a little smoother, um, a little more consistent on on getting in there without causing the foul. Uh, yeah, it, it, what my my whole thing is because we've kind of talked about how he how this team doesn't rebound very well in the interior. We're giving up a lot of points on to post guys. It's the five fouls that he brings because you can't put Tyke Green down there as much as a, a of a put, pit bull as he is. He just doesn't play that position, and be, having only really ten fouls to give between Ish and Bebe, having another five fouls because I'd rather us just go in there and just hack the hell out of them, and you know that's our defense is just hacking instead of because it's basically getting Keontae and Naquan in foul trouble when we need them going offensively that stifles our offense and stifles our team flow really as much as anything when we're trying to have to go offense for defense and stuff instead of just having uh, David and Bebe and Ish there to just have 15 fouls amongst themselves to just hack if if the thing's not going well interior so that's that's kind of where i'm at i wish we just had those five extra fouls to give i think that's a great point uh, oh sorry not to interrupt uh you know make them fear that make them fear that lane just keep hacking at them it that's i, I never even thought about that you know an extra five fouls can go a long way and you could essentially psych them out um you come to the lane you're gonna get either fouled or you're gonna get it fucking hacked at um, so yeah, I've never even thought about it in that perspective, but that's, I, and I think that's, that's a little bit where I was trying to go with my original comment of, of, he gives you more options. He gives you more creativity, uh, because you're able to sub them out. If someone's at four fouls and he's at, you know, one, two, three, you do have more leeway there and, and you can get some, you can just distribute the minutes better and distribute the fouls better. I think is, I think that's a great point, chef. And, and I've, I did, wasn't thinking about it specific to, to fouls, but I think it applies in that same case. I agree with all that. I mean, when we go against KU, one of their problems this year is they don't have a lot of depth. So us being able to have that depth for that flexibility, I think is one of those areas we could have the edge that will be important. Yeah, just to think about, like, if we get, the, like I said, those 15 fouls amongst the three big guys, and then you don't have to play Tyke Green, um, no offense to him. I, I really like his his game in spurts. But uh, like Tang said, we're not playing nine guys. It's just not going to happen this season. Um, we've got too many superstars that if if we could get those 15 fouls from those bigs instead of uh, two extra fouls or whatever fouls on Naquan and uh, Keontae, instead of them having to give those five fouls, we're so much evenly distributed and we could keep those our superstars on the court instead of having an a lineup and that that's where we got hurt uh, when they went on that long stretch is when we had Keontae on the bench and they uh I think we they went on a long stretch when they had Keontae on the bench Naquan on the bench and we had a lineup of like Marquise Desi ish uh Green and not Bebe, it might have been Bebe out there. I think I might have just named too many players, but just those, like those guys, instead of having our big three with, and with those three, like Naquan and Keontae out there, we have a, just a smattering with 
Marquise out there. It's it's so much better when you can distribute those fouls, and it makes our it makes our whole team better when we could just flow with our starting five and bring in our depth pieces when we need them, not when we I mean when we yeah when we need to, not when we have to. I think you're absolutely right, and and I think something that's going to be interesting as we pivot into the preview for the Florida game and and talk a little bit about matchup number two for Sunflower Showdown. Something that's not going to change between the last game and this game is we are going to be playing a really damn good defense. This Florida defense is ranked 15th in Ken or 14th in Kempom right now. So they're top 15 defense in adjusted defense, according to Kempom and Iowa state coming into the game last night was number four in the country, but they've since dropped actually, because again, I think I mentioned K-State is the first team in Big 12 conference play to put up 70 or more points on that Iowa State defense. So they actually fell to eighth in the country in defense last night. So very similar. They're going to be a really, really tough defense to play. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that how that works out because they, they also have a very, <laughs> a very, very bad offense, according to Ken Palm. They're 115th in offense, according to Ken Palm, whereas Iowa State's 57th. So that's one of the major differences, but but I guess the the common thread there is the defensive intensity is is going to continue for us. So, so K-State is still going to have to uh, really grind it out, I think, against this team, uh, knowing that it's not going to be an easy matchup defensively. But I think just a couple numbers to, to get into it. So I've mentioned their Ken Palm rankings. They are 44th in the net, and they are sixth place in the SEC rankings right now out of 14 teams, and they're four and three overall in SEC play. Um, this is going to be a major game for Keontae Johnson. I think that's obvious. That's clear. Everybody's talked about that so far. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how he plays against Florida, and and I think Scott on Bosco's boys brought up a great point the other day of, uh, when we played Radford, Keontae had a little bit of a, a dry spell in that game where he was playing against one of his former assistants from Florida, who's the head coach at Radford, I guess just did not have a great game. And and I guess that would be a concern maybe heading into this Florida matchup, uh, knowing that he's going up against all of his, old, all of his old teammates, all of his old coaches. So that's going to be interesting. Um I think one thing to note, and, and we've mentioned his name a couple of times, it's Colin Castleton. He's a 6'11 forward. He is their leading scorer and rebounder. He's averaging 14 and 7. Uh, he's also their steals and blocks leader, averaging uh, one steal per game and three blocks per game. So he's definitely going to be a threat both defensively and offensively, uh, looking at those numbers there. So he's a long guy. A lot of the rest of their team, though, to be honest with you, they have more guards listed in their in their top five for scoring than any other team we've played through Big 12 play, at least since since I've been actually looking at these stats because we didn't talk really a whole lot of basketball prior to the beginning of the new year here in 2023. But they've got three guys who are in that top five for scoring. Uh, who are guards. You've got Kyle Lofton. He's six foot three. He's their assist leader. He's averaging 3.2 there with eight points per game shooting. You've got Will Richard, who's six, four at guard, 10 points and four rebounds. And then you've got Kawasi Reeves. I might be mispronouncing that, but he's six, six at a guard and nine points and three rebounds on, on average for, for the season there. So interesting 
make up for their team. Again, they're definitely more on the defensive side than the offensive side. They're, they're really don't have a ton of guys who are averaging more than 10 points per game. If anything, um, they've got two guys averaging 10 points per game or, or more. So offensively, they're going to be far less of a threat than anybody we've played in big 12 play so far. Defensively, they're going to be on par with a lot of the teams we've played so far and, and back to back this game against Iowa state. It's, it's going to be interesting to see if we can continue to play well against a defensive opponent and, and maybe we break their um, record for points allowed as well. That would be something I'd want to be looking out for in this game, but uh, throw it over to the group here. What are some of your thoughts or things that you're going to be looking out for in this game against Florida? Are there any other guys that I didn't name uh, that you're looking out for? And, and I guess, what do you think are going to be some of the keys to victory for the cats? I just want to say I'm really glad about all those stats you just threw out. Um, I hadn't done a deep enough dive on them yet, but I'm not really scared of a number 14 defense because I think we've shown time and time again that we can score no matter how good you are at defense. That Oak State game may be a little bit of an outlier on that one, but what we proved last night is that we're going to get ours. And so if we're facing a team with such a horrible offense, my position on this, like we've been talking about, our down-low plays, especially defensively, is pretty rough. I think Castleton is going to get his. He's going to score 20, 20 to 25, and I'm fine with that because I think we'll be able to limit everybody else to really low numbers and can can probably win this game with somewhere like 70, 75 points. And uh, we just we just won't let a Florida score 70, and we should be okay. I agree with you there too. And and one thing I will mention is it looks like, again, I'm kind of doing the math in, in the top of my head here, but it looks like the Cats are 4-1 and one against top 30 defenses this season. Just in looking at it on Ken Palm here, we've beaten Texas, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, and Kansas, and we've lost to TCU. So I think that bodes well in our favor, knowing that who was in that TCU game, really, had we had we gotten our offense going, it probably would have gone differently. But uh, it's kind of interesting. How are we four and one? How are we four and one? And you just said Iowa State, we lost to them. Oh, shit. Three and two. Okay. That makes more sense. I was, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Ignore me. <laughs> We're three and two. So I guess more of a mixed bag, but still we've had really good, we've had really good showings against Texas, Kansas, and uh, who was the other one? Oklahoma State. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get ours. The thing is, is if we're going to let them dictate the game. And I think us being at home is going to be a godsend, really, because I think our crowd's going to be up for that one. Uh, we're coming off of a loss, and I think we want to recover. And, you know, we don't get too many. We get all the home games we get, but we're really getting the crowd into it now. We're, they're really, really excited. So I think a, a good good team, a decent team, I guess you should say, but they've got a name. So they come in, and like Hayes said, the Castleton guy, he's going to get his, but he's – He's so much different than any of the bigs we've played recently. I mean, Lampkin, the um, the one kid from Oklahoma State, I think, what was his name? Uh, I can't remember his name. But he, he these guys 
uh, the 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 guy from Baylor, Flo 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 Thamba, Flo Thamba, Flo Thamba. <laughs> you know, Mo Bamba, Flo Thamba. They all, but he got his. Musa Cisse is the guy from Oklahoma State too, right? No, but it was the other guy that went because Cisse didn't play against us, which is oh, that's uh, right. Thank God he didn't. It was um Caleb, uh, sorry, sorry, it was Caleb something. Caleb Boone or Caleb Asbury. Yeah, Caleb Boone. Yeah. He's 6'9". I was just looking at yeah, the heights. He, he went in on us. I mean, these guys are traditional. I mean, like, back to the baskets. Uh, they get offensive rebounds. They're really strong in the paint. This Castleton guy's big, and he, he's, he, he, he likes to shoot from the outside. He's he's got a good game. I think he he probably a if I'm being honest, he's probably an NBA player. Um he like he's but he's just so much different. He's gonna get his. Now, can we limit everybody else? That was the question. I think we can, and it's gonna be because we dictate the game. Uh Keontae, like you said, he he struggles in these games where he's kind of amped up, but I think he's been so um Submissive. I think we're going to be run more offense for him, not make him have to get his own offense. I want him. I I want us running sets, man. We're so good at running sets and getting Keontae in the post or getting these pick and rolls with Marquise and letting him distribute and finding offense that way. We're so much better when we're doing that. I mean, we get fast break points, but if we could dictate the game and force their guys to have to match us we're we're gonna win the game handily but it's just we have to dictate the game and i think we will but castleton's gonna get his he's a he's a stud i'm really glad you brought that thing up about castleton because i hadn't thought about it that his style of play isn't really the back to the basket thing that we're worried about um so just all in all these last 15 minutes have me feeling way better about florida but um, oh, I'm going to go back on mute. I had something good, but I forgot. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, I just want to say about Keontae, um, I haven't heard too much about his relationship with Florida. I Maybe I've just missed it. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just kind of wonder how much of that is like um, – is seeing his old teammates and coaches and having that like – be like a nice coming home moment or how much of it is sort of a uh, um, like disdain thing a little bit. Cause I know that he wanted to play for Florida and he stayed there for another year and uh, they just would not clear him. And I wonder yeah. if he has any sense of like disdain for that program for not getting him on the floor. Obviously I don't, I don't know that any of us are, are, qualified to speak on his behalf but i think just from everything that i've gathered just from the storytelling and and obviously there's been a lot of coverage on Keontae this season i think he he stayed at florida he got his degree there the doctors for whatever reason would not clear him there and i think for him he was going to go and go to and find a program that had coaching and leadership that believed in him and, and that's why you, you hear about Hoiberg kind of being in the mix with Nebraska. That's why you hear about, um, you know, Jerome Tang, Scott Drew, they, they had, and I'm 
totally blanking on his name, but the player at Baylor that also went through some heart issues. Um, was it Isaiah Austin? Who was it? That that sounds right. He was the one that had no depth perception. Yeah, so it, but but they they had dealt with it, right? So it, he was planning on going to a program that had dealt with it, and and you know, coaching staff that that believed in him, and doctors obviously that would clear him. So you know, from everything I've gathered, I don't know that there's a disdain there. I think he I think he left Florida on good terms, and when he entered the transfer portal, he had already graduated. He got his degree from Florida. It seemed like he really does have an affinity and an, an affection and soft spot for that program and, and that school. But, you know, I, I'm not qualified to speak on it. I'm not qualified to, to put words in his mouth or, or tell people how he feels because that's just kind of what I've gathered from the context clues. But I'm curious if anybody else here has thought anything different or, or gathered anything different from that. I, I, I'll agree with that. I, I don't think that there's any disdain there from, from what I've gathered. Um, I think that he will probably be, and this is like you said, based off of um, reports and stuff and, and his interviews um, he could, he could be masking. I mean, he's never really had come out and said he's had any ill will against him, but I do think he will be uh, probably subtly or uh, what would be the right word internally be playing with a chip on his shoulder to say, look at me, even though I think someone did say it in the chat. I think this is a all new coaching staff. So yeah, that's right. There may it's, not it's that be... golden guy, right. From uh, San Francisco. Yeah. If I remember right. Yeah. So I, I, I think that it could be a, a little lost there, but it is still the same team. So I think that he's probably internally going to be playing with a chip on his shoulder. And I, and I feel like he's going to step up for, well, I'll push back a little bit on that because I mean I I'm not going to knock his affinity for uh, Florida University or University of University of Florida, but if you, if you look at this roster, it's he hasn't played with any of these guys. None of the none of the team he played for. The coaching staff's different. Everybody on the roster is different from when he I think, uh, collapsed. I think Castleton was on that team, right? Because it was twenty. Yeah, but he didn't. He, yeah, but he, he. Yeah, but that was his. That was his junior year, and he didn't play. Right. It was his sophomore year. None of these guys were on the roster when he collapsed. So he hasn't played basketball with any of these guys. He might know them, but I mean, he, he, it's not like he's got like some animosity, like or anything like that. Not that you're saying that, but I'm just saying like I don't think that's a driving force. I think it's just uh, it's going to be if if I was in his shoes, this is how I would see it. Uh, this is my old university and I'm playing basketball finally, but I have to go against the the Jersey that I used to wear. And I think that's, I think a lot of with the world we're living in today with the transfer portal and things like that. And I mean, I mean, just even maybe five or six years ago, you weren't transferring in conference. So you were the odds of you even seeing your team is very slim so, like, uh, what's the Tyrese Hunter from Iowa State going to Texas and having to play them twice? It's just so happened that we play Florida this year. And I actually wanted to – I mean, I'll say – I just finished my thought that him seeing his jersey on the other side is going to be a little strange, but I don't think it's going to, like, hold him back. Now, what I want to ask everybody in the group, 
this Big 12 SEC challenge, how do we feel about like it being set at the beginning of the year? Because I don't like that. I wish we it was a, a TBA and like maybe a week and a half out or two weeks out, they decide who we play and it it makes the matchups better because I mean you got Kentucky versus Kansas and uh who who's like Arkansas versus Oklahoma State, I think, or something like that. Like Arkansas versus Baylor, I think. Oh, is it? And, oh, well, yeah, that's actually yeah. kind of good. But I mean, just like I wish they could. <laughs> I wish they could like determine like the bottom teams in the Big Twelve play the bottom teams, and the top teams play the top teams. And I do, I do want to make one point of clarification. So Keontae and Castleton did play on that team. So the day that Keontae collapsed, that would have been Castleton's fourth game in a Florida uniform as a student there and as a as a member of that team. So they played what four games together on the court which is interesting, I guess, three and a half, if you, if you want to even call it that. So he's, but yeah, looking at the roster, he's the only one that looks like he's, he's carried over. So um, yeah, to, to just make a quick clarification there. Didn't, so chef to your question, didn't when they do the, they, they have those old bracket busters, what, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you'd have Wichita state play, I don't know, Davidson or something in a bracket buster. Didn't they add those and and decide those matchups like a week or two weeks in advance? And the team had no idea who it would be going into the matchup, but it was like halfway through conference play, similar to the way we structure it now with the big 12 sec challenge. I thought so, but I mean, even uh, what's like the invitationals, the, like the Maui, I mean, you know, who's in the field which is we know who's in the SEC, but you don't know who, who you're playing for in the first round or right. who you're going to be playing in the, like make it. So we, we know who's in the SEC, but we don't know who we're playing until like a week out. Give me that. I, Cause I want it. I want it to be more compelling. Not that you can't make it compelling or every basketball team can beat any. It's so hard in bass college basketball. Cause there's very few teams where you're just like, oh, this is an absolute automatic dub. But the SEC, like having Kentucky down this year, I don't want to see them play KU. I mean, at the beginning of the year, obviously that makes sense. But right now, it just, it's just, ugh, it's just meh. I want, yeah, and and I, I would I would prefer not to have the same matchup back to back years because we played Ole Miss what two years in a row back to back. I you know and I, and I, I'm kind of looking at some at some research here. So it does look like those bracket busters that they had. It was like the Colonial, the Horizon League, the Mid American, the Missouri Valley, the WAC. Those were the conferences that were in it. They would decide which teams were going to play. It was on a specific Saturday. And they had a field of teams to pick from and they would pick a handful and, and air those games. And it looks like in 2006, they paired up Wichita state and George Mason, which later faced each other in the sweet 16. So I thought that was fun. And, and I would prefer to do it that way where, you know, we know we're going to be playing the sec or, or whoever we're going to be paired up with after this season. Cause I think this is the last year of the sec challenge, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I would like to know, a week in advance or two weeks in advance who we're going to play based on what those teams resumes have looked like and pair it up similar to how you do an NFL football, where you have the division winners play the division winners or leaders every season. And you, you tear it out based on 
standings within the conference. So K-State would be playing Tennessee or Alabama. You'd have Texas Tech playing, God, I don't know, Vanderbilt or whoever's in last place right now in the SEC standings. I don't think it's Vanderbilt. I think it's South Carolina. <laughs> they're pretty oh, trash. God. But the, the, yeah, but the reason – but, but the thing about it is they don't bring their – they don't bring their all their bad teams to the challenge because right. they have fourteen teams. We only have we only have ten. So, but we will have fourteen next year. But yeah, that would be fun. But we don't play them next year. I think it would be cool if we could get the Big Ten involved because they have fourteen. We have fourteen. It it would be very it would be very nice. Uh, we would I think we would smoke them. But you know whatever, that would be fun. Well, and they'll they'll have sixteen. They'll have sixteen when oh, USC and shit. UCLA join. Damn! Oh, I, I, damn! That's that's weak. Well, UCLA is <laughs> really good in basketball. Fuck. USC's had their years. They had OJ Mayo once. Oh my! With uh, with everything Chef's been saying, I don't really see much of an argument against doing it like two weeks prior. Like it seems like it benefits everyone. It makes it more fun for everyone. And it's basketball. Like, it's it's a little different than football. Like, you can play a team that you know you're going to play from two weeks out. It doesn't really matter. Um, so I frankly can't really see an argument against it other than what you guys are talking about, like matching the 1v1, 2v2, that, that type of thing. You almost wonder if the conference would want that because then you're giving your, uh, like, league winner a potential loss versus – where right now I guess it's kind of up in the air. Like you don't really know if they're going to face such a good team. That's my thing with that is my, well, sorry, Will. Uh, my thing with that is like in basketball, I mean, it's not like football where like a loss, like, Oh, we're out of the national title contention. Like you kind of want, you kind of want in basketball to play really, really good teams because uh, even a loss, it kind of counts as a dub in a, in some ways because if you have quad one losses, you're like, okay, that, that helps. But like, if you're right. playing, if we're playing freaking like we're playing Florida, if we lose to Florida, that hurts our resume. But if we're playing uh Tennessee, if we get a Tennessee win or we only, if we, if it's a close loss, like that helps our resume, just putting really, really good teams. And I think the conference would want that having out of conference really really tough games is is kind of what you want right you gotta because, understand be, though yeah go ahead you gotta understand this is the sec we're talking about though <laughs> I, mean, the, I don't know if you guys watched the show um and this is going to kind of be a tangent but um street outlaws where they're locking up races it and you want to make sure that you have the edge so you've seen the sec do this time and time again uh, I, I would love to see it. I would love to see, you know, they lay out the top of their league versus the, you know, the top of our league. They've got uh, extra members. So why not put the top against the top? But I mean, it, you know that it's going to get better draws on TV, but it's going to come down to the wins. If they can weasel out a win, they're going to try and do it. And that's just how I. Yeah. But, but chef, you have a, a great point there. And that's what I was going to mention is, you, you know, quad one loss is a lot better than, you know, quad four loss or something. So you, you would rather have your top team 
outplay their top team. And even if you come out with a loss, that's still going to, in some cases, improve your resume because I don't know how they weight a quad one loss over like a quad four win, but I, you know, I would be interested to maybe see what that looks uh, like research wise. From when, from all the freaking uh, selection Sundays that I look at, I mean, if they, the mention of a quad four win doesn't, it never comes up, but they'll have, they'll have on their, they like, they'll do the little, little CBS thing where they have the, the team sitting in the chairs and they put their resume up and it's always bad loss, which you don't want. They don't ever print the bad wins. They don't ever put those up. They have quality wins and then they have quality losses and you want that. I mean, you, if you're going, there's no difference in my opinion. I don't know how the selection committees and all this stuff, because we're, we're really not, we're at the point where we're not worried about selection committees at this point, but uh, when you are a, a team that's on a bubble like uh, West Virginia is going to be, uh, Oklahoma State's going to be, if Oklahoma State has the opportunity to play, um, uh, not Ole Miss, but like uh, a Missouri or or freaking not Tennessee because they're really elite, but just like one of those middling, close to quad one wins. Texas in the A&M. F- yeah, in the Texas SEC. A&M. They're five and one in, in conference and 13 and six overall. And you get those guys and you get Oklahoma State. If they lose to Texas A&M, that's a quality loss. So if you're if at the end of the season they're 18 and 10 or they're 19 and 9 or something like that, they'll look at that. And that's the, the difference between playing if you're 21 and 7, or I don't know, the, the, the numbers are all maybe a little bit off. 21 and 7, you're and you only have shit wins. You're going to be an 11 seed. It, it's just that simple. But if you have 18 wins and you have quality, quality wins and quality, quality losses, you might be a, a, a nine or a seven. I mean, a, or an eight. It's just it's just that they're splitting hairs that much. And that's why I don't understand why when you're doing these cross-conference midseason challenges like us playing Butler, like – that one's a little early, so I guess planning it at. But when you're midseason like this, you know who the, the top teams are. So put like put R one versus their one, R two versus their two, and let it let us go at it. Yeah, and and I like the Big East Challenge personally. I wish we did it more similar to like the SEC Challenge, where you do it in the middle of the season or you do it on a single day and. You know, it's this competition between two conferences. And and the thing I like about the Big East, too, is, you know, the SEC is a top three conference in basketball. The Big East is the only other one that's in the top three, according to Kempom, at least, when you're looking at the statistical averages for all, all the teams in the conference. Now that they have UConn in there in the mix, Creighton's had a pretty damn good year. Seton Hall's always salty. St. John's, some of these, some of these really good historical Big East teams are really fun to watch. And and I think it, it bodes for a good brand of basketball, but uh, big 10 would be a great option as well. I mean, they're, they've got good teams year in and year out. I would love to see K-State get an opportunity to play someone like Michigan state uh, in a random non-conference game halfway through the season. You know who I wouldn't want to play? Purdue. <laughs> God damn. Perdon't. Perdon't. That, that dude is so 
freaking big. I watch him every time I get a chance that I don't know what's his last name, Issei or or something like that. It's like some E name. That dude's seven five. And it's so funny to watch. Like if we put like Naquan Tomlin against him, he would make Naquan look like a little human. And it was so, <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, uh I I like this. I like this thought experiment. I would, you know, if I were in charge of the NCAA and and basketball, I would absolutely love to to have different conferences and and maybe you don't even play a set conference every year. Maybe you rotate between the Power 6 conferences of, you know, the ACC, the SEC, the Big 10, the Big East and and the Pac-12. That would be that would be fun to see the Big 12 play those different conferences every year and, and maybe go on a rotation similar to how some of the bowls work with, with this college football playoff. Now, hear me out. I know, I know the, the spectacle in March is the NCAA basketball tournament. It's, I mean, it is the crown jewel of collegiate sports, in my opinion. The playoff in football is kind of trash. The whole offseason in football is kind of butt. But the NCAA tournament is the crown jewel. Now, but hear me out. If you had, okay, let's say you got your five uh, pay games where we're paying teams to come and take the L, basically. Then you start, before conference play, you start another, a field of 68 tournament at the very beginning. Now, how you would select these teams is a little difficult, but that would be so freaking cool if we had two NCAA tournaments in the same year. And it kind of, then like this whole, um, like K-State wouldn't be a surprise at that point. Or um, like the, this whole Cinderella rise that we've had, it would make it the, you could call it whatever you want, but like if you had an NCAA tournament at the beginning of the season and though that is basically the kickstart of conference play and then you go through that and then the the big one and then you wouldn't have this whole thing like, oh, this team should be in this. The bubble wouldn't exist if you had an NCAA tournament at the beginning of the season, in my mm-hmm. opinion, because. Go ahead. Uh, oh, I was just going to say my issue with that is how do you crown a national champion? If you like you're going to have these disputed situations where you'll have a UCF like 2017 football thing where they claim that they won the tournament at the beginning of the year. And so they're the real national champion. No, well, and then you have a second national champion at the end of the season. I, I would be curious your rebuttal to that. I think it would be, it would be more along the lines of like how you get seeding towards the end of the season uh, where like, we all know that like, if a con- like Iowa State's won the Big 12 championship uh, in the postseason tournament so many years and they get bumped out real quick in the NCAA tournament. But like if you had that, like you would already be like whittling down teams that could make tournament runs and they would be higher seeds in the NCAA tournament basically automatically. And I think I think how you would determine how teams get into that is um yeah, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I haven't yeah. thought that one through. <laughs> the thing but and I know that Scott has mentioned this before on Bosco's boys, but the thing that you know, I I I used to work for Hale Library at K-State and do the K-State Libraries thing and half of my job I would just sit there and go through 
the old yearbooks from the 70s and the 80s and the 60s. And, and in these yearbooks, they would have the schedule for the basketball team. And they had this holiday tournament in December that was a conference tournament in the Big Eight. And they would play it, I think, in Kansas City every year. And what they do is they would just go through and and whoever won that won the holiday tournament. But it didn't you didn't really have like it didn't have championship implications. You didn't get an at large or you didn't get a, an automatic bid from it. But I think to your point, if you're wanting to better suss out what conference play is going to look like in this case, conference play, not the the broader tournament, that would be a way where you could potentially just get a better idea or, or get a better look at some of these teams that really, in some cases like Texas tech, they played one of the weakest schedules coming into the season. We don't know if they're going to be great like they were last year or the year prior, or if they're going to be ass uh, like they are this year. So I think that would maybe be a good way to suss it out. And, and I think it's, it's, it's more fun to add, you know, something in before conference play, really truly starts at the beginning of the year because I think, you know, our, our podcast fell victim to this a little bit, but the emphasis is all on football 99% of the time until you get to January 8th or January 10th when they play the national championship game. And then people are fully zeroed in on, on men's basketball and women's basketball. But, you know, until you get to that point, you know, you have the feast week stuff, but I'm sure the ratings and viewership for that is minimal compared to even some of the games we've had in conference play so far. So it's, it's an interesting I, thought experiment though, for sure. Yeah. I agree with what you just said. Like, I mean, it would help the sport, but like, I want to clean it up a little bit. This is how I want to do it. Okay. I thought about it while you were talking. Okay. We, to get an invitational to, and I know there's so much turnover in basketball, but, I think depending on how you finish this, how you, okay. How you finished the tournament last year, the, the top, the sweet 16 automatically gets bids into the, the invitational, the beginning tournament in the beginning of the year. Okay. Um, champions of postseason uh, tournaments like NIT, all those, they Ooh. get invites. Um so it, it it makes the NIT even more worth it. Um and then uh pat regular season tournament or your conference record uh determines if you can get in. So like the top four of the Big Twelve, the top four of all the power power six conferences in basketball get automatic bids in. Then that basically fills that out, and then you could do um, like loser brackets. So like not everybody's, everybody's playing the, basically the same amount of games. Um, just, you just end up with a champion and then it's just filling out loser brackets after that. That's how I would do it. But that's, it's just a shot in the dark. And I, I like to have fun with things like that. You, uh, you're talking about kind of like a <clears throat> double elimination or it's it, almost, you're talking about two different. No, no, no. It's, to get in or just it, in my tournament view, like how I, how this tournament would go. Is that what you're talking about? If yeah, uh, what I'm thinking is like, you know how, <laughs> like, you know how you do fantasy football at the end of the season. Like if you don't make the, you make the turn, you make the, the playoffs, you get eliminated, but you get hit into a 
uh, loser's bracket or a, what do they call it? A constellation, constellation ladder or what is something like that? And you yeah. play, like, if you get eliminated in the round of 64, now you have 32 teams that could play basically a smaller tournament. And it just kind of, like, the losers of that tournament play each other. And it and you're, so you're playing basketball games, but you're obviously playing teams that are on your level because you've already lost in the round of 64. But the teams that win obviously continue the tournament and then kind of if you lose in the round of 32, now you have uh, 16 teams that can play in that kind of that field. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it would be a tournament based. It would be a tournament built off a tournament is what. Yeah, it, is. it would be. Yeah. And then you would basically play the same amount of games as the team that makes it to the championship game. So everybody plays the same amount of games, but you're playing losers of losers and winners of winners. So that's how I would do this tournament. So it's basically the regular season, how we have it now, where you're playing um, Big East tournaments or Big East challenges versus the Big 12, and you're playing um, games just that are decent games, but they're not like heavy hitter games, but you're playing in a tournament where there is a a crown for the the beginning you could call it what you want i just say it's a beginning ncaa tournament okay so so in so in your in your scenario here where who would k-state be playing based on how k-state finished last year and then in theory in theory in your example here k-state essentially just like dominates and obliterates the competition because they're playing like what the last place team in every conference or something like that well technically if i'm being honest with myself and not putting the purple glasses on we don't make this tournament right because you have we weren't top four you have to make the you have to make the march the the big tournament in order to get into the other tournament so we wouldn't have even well in mine in my in my brain I, i these are not this people can fact check this and like dig into this and say it makes no sense. But in my brain, the top 16, the sweet 16 teams make it automatically. Then it goes off of conference record. We were dead last in, in the big 12 last year. So we weren't going to make, we don't make this tournament at all. Like we're having to find cupcake games and it might make our record look good, but we, we aren't it that this is why i said like this beginning ncaa tournament helps weed out tournament teams to make the real big dance at the beginning of the year and i know that would suck for us because we have a really good team obviously that proves it over time we're 17 and 3 but we in my world in this alternate universe basically starting this year um if we started it like we did now, this would be a whole new revolutionary way to do college basketball and it would change everything. So it would, you're basically benefiting from being really good the previous year. You're uh, giving credit for postseason play. Like, okay, say we, this is now we're going, we're going to do this. We're going to do it. Uh, okay. Say we're having the team we have now, but we have this beginning NCAA tournament. We might be really, really good, and we might be 17 and three right now. They might think of us as making it to the final NCAA tournament, 
but we might not make it, but we might make it to the NIT and we might dominate the NIT and we win the NIT. So we automatically get a bid for the NCAA tournament next year in that beginning tournament. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all kind of, it stretches the season out and you want postseason play. You want to finish high in your conference. You want to make it to that first NCAA tournament so you can make it to the final NCAA tournament. So the chance to get to the Sweet 16, so you have it, uh, it just keeps the cycle going. Okay, I'm I'm following now. From For whatever reason, when you were saying like the teams are going to have to play the same amount of games, I was thinking about that as okay, you're going to seed like the last place team or, or the second to last place team in the conference and have them play, you know, in a tournament with the other bottom half teams in the conference. So that's that's where I thought you were going with it when you said that they would need to play an equal or, or similar amount of games. So that was that was no, me no, just no. misunderstanding you. No, this is basically filtering out the top 64 teams. So like the this is okay. If you have your top 64 teams from last year and they get into a big conglomerate tournament, now you get booted out in that first 32. You're playing the bottom 32 teams of that. And if you keep losing, you keep losing and you won't make the NCAA tournament. But if you keep winning, let's say you get booted out in the round of third, the, the, the first round, the 64, you win you keep winning, you'll have a record of like six and one versus quality teams. But you won't you won't be the champion of the NCAA tournament, but you'll have a really, really good record, which will help you make the final NCAA, the final NCAA tournament. Does that make sense? You yes. have better basketball yes, on does. TV. You have better basketball on TV. Let those teams that pay for, like that we pay to get to 12 and one, just let them play, and they if they win their conference or whatever, they can make the NCAA tournament because you'd still have automatic bids because you would need to fill 64 teams. And if if you make it, then you make it into the tournament. But you got to have – I want quality basketball at the beginning of the season. That's basically what I'm asking. I think that – I think Dylan brings up a good point. Uh, you're going to have these teams like St. Peter's, though. Um, you're um, – well, the bottom of, I guess you would call them the, the hopes and prayers teams where they make it into the, the bracket and um, get those wins. Uh, I think it was, was it St. Peter's this last year that went deep? Um, yeah, they were like a 15 seed. Yeah, so they were like a 15 seed. Yeah, Cinderella story. Thank you, Bob. Uh, you, you know, those are going to be, they're going to have a harder time getting into that. It, it, to get into the final one, but let's say they're a 15 seed in this opening, this opening tournament. If they get eliminated in the first round, like if that happens to 15 seeds all the time in the big tournament, but if you're a 15 seed in the beginning tournament and you lose in the first round, but you dominate the rest and you go six and one, that helps your resume because you're playing other teams and let's say there is an upset in the in the round of uh, round of sixty four in the beginning tournament, and they mo- they keep that's just more quality teams that we're playing. And you're looking at that team at like St. Peter's. If they do that in the beginning tournament, I bet you that there'll be a higher seed in the 
final uh, in the big tournament at the beginning of the year, the final NCAA tournament. So it's not a Cinderella story. They're a quality team. And we've proven that by a beginning tournament where St. Peter's, we nobody knew who they were because they were playing nobodies at the beginning of the year. And they were a Cinderella story because we didn't know them. But if they play in a, uh, a beginning tournament where they're playing quality teams for seven games in a row, but they lose the opening round, but they win the next six, they're not a Cinderella story. They might be a seven seed in the final tournament. You know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. What I think, what I think is interesting here in this thought experiment though, is I think back even five years ago, typically the team that would win the NIT or some of these Cinderella teams, I feel like weren't, they were still obviously a a likelihood or a possibility that their coach would get poached by some power five team or that their best player, you know, could leave the program and be a one and done or be leave the program. If you're thinking like Steph Curry, but I think he played four years at Davidson anyway, but, or you, you know, your best player leaves and joins the transfer portal before the transfer portal was really rampant the way it is now you would have some of those teams win the NIT and continue the success that they did after winning the NIT by becoming a threat in the NCAA tournament the following year. Or you'd have these Cinderella story teams where they make a big run, deep run in the tournament, and you know they continue to have success similar to, you know, this is probably going to peeve a lot of people, but Wichita State had some good success in the mid-2000s to, to mid-2010s because they had a good coach and they had that formula and they just repeated that over and over and over again. And so I think what this thought experiment does is it potentially brings back some of the carryover that you would see from year to year with some of those teams, because a lot of times you'd have a Cinderella story, but they would continue that success uh, whether that's from the NIT to the NCAA tournament or from, you know, a 15 seed Florida Gulf coast, if they, you know, didn't have the drop off they did afterward, maybe it incentivizes the coach or it incentivizes the players to stay as a unit, as opposed to exploring some of their options. Because you look at St. Peter's from last year, ain't nobody left on that St. Peter's team. The the kid that was the white guy with the mustache or whatever, he's gone. The head coach, he's gone. Half of the team, they're gone. So St. Peter's isn't going to be anything this year. And I'm on the record of saying that. And if th- th- this is a freezing cold take, I'll, I'll be called out on it, I'm sure. But I think what this does, Chef, is it incentivizes players and maybe coaches to stick around and continue the momentum that they build, built off of from the previous year, potentially similar to what we saw maybe even five years ago before the transfer portal was more of a thing. And now think of this. Okay, you, you had a team that made the NIT um, you had heavy you were a heavy senior team but you, the year before you were shit you were a heavy senior team now you made the NIT tournament you won it you're an automatic bid into that big the beginning 64 team when you go into that offseason you were a heavy senior team you can sell that you're going to be a beginning NCAA tournament team uh, whatever you want to call it I don't have a good name for it um, but you could sell that to recruits like transfer here. We're going to the NCAA tournament. You're going to play really quality teams and we're going to, we're going to have a chance to make the NCAA tournament and make big noise. Cause like, if you're at, like you were saying with St. Peter's, you had a magical season 
But that doesn't mean anything for next year because everybody could be gone. And now you're a bottom dweller again. But if you have something to build on, and this is kind of what um, makes, and then it would, it would eliminate all these preseason, too many, too early preseason polls at the beginning of the year, because we know who's going to that beginning 64 team. Now we can build on that. And if, and it, it helps the teams that aren't very good either because now you're not playing in that field of 64 team, but you can win games, make the NIT, and win it again, and now you're in it. It's just – it gets the cycle going so we don't have to worry about having Kentucky be – have the name brand Kentucky and be dog shit and then expect them to do anything, and we're going to keep them on the bubble because they're Kentucky. No, if you're good – you make the turn you make that beginning tournament or you make noise in the beginning tournament whether you lose one game or lose two games or whatever you just have an overall record but if you're if you make that 64 let's let's say on the the flip hand you make that field of 64 team we thought you were good from last year but now you're not very good you make that field of 64 team and you go 0 for 7 guess where you're going to the bottom and you know what you have to do you have to rebuild you have to keep winning quality games in conference or whatever or how however you want to do it but you can rebuild because there's I don't know how many uh postseason tournaments there are but you can win one of those and get a bid into it again but you just have to keep winning that's basically what it is I absolutely like it um I can because it it stresses the the fact that you need consistency uh <clears throat> you know it even though you, we say that you have a set amount of wins to get into the the big dance. Uh, it's there's there's a lot of freedom, you know. You don't. How should I say this? You're gonna in this in this style. You're gonna have to be consistent in order to be on top. And uh, like you said, just because a blue blood is a blue blood, they automatically get merit. And this totally takes away from that. And like Bob said, it's probably going to cause players to stay. You're not going to have those one-off years. So I absolutely. And to round out the conversation, because I think we're, we're probably going to jump here in a moment, but St. Peter's this year is three and eight in their conference, the Metro Athletic, Metro Atlantic athletic conference, and they're eight and 12 overall. So they are, in the bottom, and they are being assaulted. <laughs> Damn those peacocks! <laughs> and yeah, I don't. I don't even know where Bryant is. If that's where that Doug Eater guy transferred to, I, I know nothing about that school. But uh, I guess before we jump, we we do also have the KU game next Tuesday. Who knows what they're going to be ranked after they've gone through this losing streak that they have They're They're still 16 and four overall. They're still very respected in Kempom. They're somehow 10th overall there, 17th on offense, 25th on defense. And their strength of schedule, I think is really carrying them there to, to bring it back full circle to the conversation we've had uh, strength of schedule, super valued. And, and if you have a loss to the number, you know, three or four Tennessee volunteers, that's going to reflect more more well on your team than losing or, or winning against some, I don't know, UTRGV or something. So um, they are 10th in the net overall, similar to Ken Palm, same exact position. But because of all of this, they are fifth in the Big 12 
Uh, and obviously there's a lot of ties here at the top, but they're, they're technically right in the middle of the pack in big 12 play with a record of five and three so far in conference play. And, you know, I'm not going to belabor it because there's a lot that we've already talked about with Kentucky, but I think one of the biggest things I'm going to be looking for is will Jalen Wilson be that guy again, that he was in the game against us. And, and even if he is, will there be a Grady Dick or KJ Adams or some of these other guys that step up? and fill that void because they really beyond the the three guys that are going to get, you know, eight to 10 points for them or more, they don't have any depth on that bench. That's going to be getting buckets against us. So it's going to be very interesting to see who becomes that third guy for them. If there is a third guy for them, because really it's Jalen Wilson and Grady Dick and and everybody else for KU. So it's going to be interesting to watch this game that they have against Kentucky this weekend Similar to KU, this is a Kentucky team that the fans have have, you know, the fans haven't turned on Bill Self, but the fans have turned on on Calipari, and it sounds like Calipari might be on the first flight to Austin when when the season is over. And you know, they're not terrible in their conference right now, but you know, a sixteen and five record or whatever they have right now, let me just double check that is not going to fly. They're fourteen and six and five and three in conference play. That that doesn't fly with the fans of the Kentucky Wildcats as a, as a whole. So I'll be watching that game this weekend. We've, you know, lots of Chiefs fans here as well. We're all going to be watching that, that AFC championship game on Sunday as well. So going to be a fun sports weekend across the board, but I mean, chef Hayes, will any of y'all have any thoughts uh, before we head into that KU game next Tuesday, knowing this is the last time we're all going to talk before next Wednesday. No, I mean, I'm, I, I have to mentally prepare myself for KU and I'm off that day. So it's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of emotions. I'll probably be on Twitter heavy that day talking a lot of shit or what, what have you, you know, I, I get on Twitter very seldomly and, and express my feelings, but uh, you know, that that's going to be a big game and you know, let's see how we do in Allen field. What is it? Yeah. Allen, is it Allen Fieldhouse? Whatever. They suck. Fog Allen Fieldhouse. Fog Allen. You know, hopefully we can we can bounce back, have a good game versus Florida, and that just springboards us right into that KU game, and we just keep on rolling because the top of the 12 is tight, real tight. So let's keep it going. I got to say, as far as the KU game, um, I feel like, weirdly confident and I kind of hate it but um I just I think that we are just objectively the better team um and obviously anything can happen on a night in night out basis in the in all of college basketball and especially the big 12 but I feel like we are the better team and I'm not super scared of Allen Fieldhouse I know that some weird magic and whistle trickery happens in there but i uh i feel pretty good about that one personally i feel like uh i'm gonna kind of stay reserved only because i want to see what happens against um kentucky when ku plays kentucky because i think that's going to set a precedent on on how it goes against us um i i i do feel like uh they're on the verge of of pushing that panic button and um 
one more loss on them is just uh, Will had kind of said, Will Boy had said this earlier, you know, I think it's going to set the, you know, the wheels are just going to fall off after that. Um, so I, I do feel, I agree with Hayes. I think we're the better team, but a loss uh, to a blue blood could, uh, it, well, I, sh- I take that back. A loss to a down blue blood could um, really wreck the rest. I just want to add to that that um, the like long time thought of KU is you don't want to face them after a loss and you're always scared of that. And I feel like this season, at least me, I'm kind of completely different. I feel like if they keep losing or lose at all, um, I don't know that the wheels are ever going to essentially fall off and like they're just going to go on some huge losing streak. But it just doesn't scare me because I just don't think that they have the roster that they used to to be able to respond to a loss like that and like the culture that they had. Um, I just feel like if they keep losing, like that's just going to show more about them and make it more likely for them to lose in the future rather than seeing them and being like, Oh no, we don't want to face them after a loss. Like it's always been. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out and, and, Again, I'm going to be watching this weekend to see what happens in, in the Big 12 SEC Challenge for all of the Big 12 teams that we have facing SEC opponents. So uh, another really interesting matchup is obviously, and always, anytime Texas plays Rick Barnes, it's, it's always something I'm going to be watching. But I think that'll round it out for this week's episode of Cocaine Willie. And, and I, you know, if you heard my little Easter egg last week, maybe I'll throw it back in this time, but left a little Easter egg for everybody last week at the end of the episode. So if you listen that long, you know, let me know that you listen that long. And, and it took me a long time to, to edit that in. So if you know what I'm talking about, drop me a line, but for all of us here at cocaine, Willie to everybody in the live room who contributed tonight and everyone listening on the feed, thank you a ton. Give cocaine Willie a follow on Spotify or Apple podcast to be notified of new episodes when they drop and leave us a review. Be a nice be a nice guy or gal and leave us a review with your feedback. We only have five-star reviews, so we'd love to, to continue the five-star train. And if you're on Twitter, follow the show at Cocaine Willie or follow us individually. I am your commissioner at Bob Trollsby. The good chef is at Chef Andre Napier. And Fireball Matt, who will be rejoining us again next week, is at Matt Marchesini. Chef. Cocaine's a hell of a drug, baby. We're all coke and no joke. And Hayes and Will, if you want to get in on this, Wildcat Country, let's ride. ride. Let's ride. Let's ride. I think I found a name for that NCAA tournament. The opening. The opening. (laughs) The opening. I love it.